Alright, so here's the passage on the screen. I'll go ahead and read it for you. We're in Titus chapter 2. You're welcome to pull up your, your uh, Bible if you've got a hard copy or your electronic device. And follow along and keep it open to that as we go uh, through this morning. So it starts this. He says, Paul says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Thank you again, Paul, for a long sentence. Declare these things... Exhort and rebuke them, and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. And so that's our passage this morning. And so we're going to start right at the beginning. He says what? The grace of God has appeared. Well, what is the grace of God? Right? He starts off this whole very long sentence in this little passage, this statement, and we go, wow, it's very rich and there's all kinds of information in it, but why don't we start with that? What is the grace of God? That's one of those phrases we can all just sort of throw around. Oh yeah, the grace of God. God is really gracious to me. His grace is grace is grace grace. But let's start with thinking about grace. What is grace? How do we define grace in our language? We define it this way, basically as unmerited favor. Unmerited favor. Another way of thinking about it is being paid without working for it. Right? Isn't that what grace is? Hey, I get something, but I didn't have to do anything for it. Or, I've received mercy, but it's unwarranted. I've received mercy, but it's unwarranted. I don't deserve mercy. I was trying to think about where grace shows up in the world around us, and I only came up with a couple ideas. One of them is, I don't know, does anybody check out books at the library? And you get, like, grace days. Right? It's due on Friday, but you get three grace days. I don't know. Shouldn't they just make the due date three days later? I never really understood that, but that's a grace day. It's, I guess it's unmerited. I'm not sure if that's even the right use of the term grace, or even with credit cards. Now, I know nobody has credit cards here, right? Because we all love what Dave Ramsey says, which is, I'm just kidding, no. Most of us probably have credit cards, but some credit cards will have a grace period. You reach that moment, and you're like, you haven't paid it, but we're going to give you a grace period of 30 days or 15 days or whatever it is, and it's that idea of, this is unmerited. This is unwarranted. Here's mercy for you. So that's what grace is, unmerited favor. So what is God's grace? Well, it would be unmerited favor from God. It's his goodness that we cannot earn. Because if we earned it, it wouldn't be grace. We'll talk about this more as we go along. But we see from this verse that God is gracious. God is gracious. He does extend unmerited favor to us. Isn't that worth worshiping him for? He extends unmerited favor to us. Now, some, and maybe even some of you here today, or I've been this way in in my life, think of God and maybe have sort of a, a view that he's kind of a tyrant. 
He's all just the judge, you know, with the big white beard, and he sits up there, and he's, he's always judging me. Why do you always have to be judging me, right? That's how we think about God. He's just right and wrong and squash the bug under my foot. But this tells us that God is gracious. Now, I think God is just, right? We'd agree that God is just, and he, he is going to judge all things, but... This verse tells us that God is gracious. He extends to us what we don't deserve, what we can't earn. Man, we should rejoice in that, shouldn't we? So, I was thinking about grace, and I said, well, what are some other places in Scripture that tell us about the grace of God? And I came up with a couple. And we could just say... Well, what else is the grace of God? What else does Scripture say? One of those things is it tells us that God's grace is the source of our strength if we believe in Him. 2 Corinthians 12, 9, Paul says this. He says, God said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Paul says, Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest on me. God's grace can be the source of our strength. It can be the source of our strength. It's sufficient for us. It helps us. It covers our weaknesses. Another thing the scripture says about grace is that it governs us. It governs us. Romans 6, 12-14, Paul says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. And so we see here, grace governs us. Law doesn't govern us. Grace governs us. Praise be to God for that. And then, of course, we see in other places in Scripture that God's grace is the source of eternal salvation. And that's what we see right in our passage today. And so that leads us to the idea that God's grace brings salvation. Salvation, it says in the verse, bringing salvation for all people. Bringing salvation for all people. I think as we've walked through this passage, right? As we walk through Titus, there's been a lot of, here's a list of things to do. Here's a list of character qualities. Here's a list of things, right? You guys remember that? I love that Paul brings it back to, yeah, but it all starts with salvation. God's grace and salvation to us. I think it's really exciting. So, what is salvation? Well, if we look at verse 14, it says, here's the summation of what salvation is. Jesus Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. Well, let's focus on that first part. Jesus Christ gave himself for us. Gave himself for us. What does that mean? Gave himself how? Well, he died at the end of a perfect life. Jesus came to earth and lived a perfect life. It's amazing. None of us have lived a perfect life. 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made him, Jesus, who had no sin to be, to become sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus Christ came to earth and took our place and gave himself for us. We go on to the next part of the verse. 
redeemed us from all lawlessness. Well, what is lawlessness? Lawlessness is essentially total disobedience to the law. Which law? Well, you know, not the Constitution. That's not the law he's talking about. He's talking about God's law. Who set up the law? God did. How is it summarized? The Ten Commandments. It's the summary of God's law. Jesus showed up and obeyed all of them. He fulfilled it. We, on the other hand, have broken all of them, haven't we? And then he redeemed us. What does redeemed mean? Redeemed means bought back, saved from destruction. So we put it all together and say this. God shows us unmerited, undeserved favor by sending Jesus Christ to live a perfect life. He died so as to bring us back from the destruction we deserve for breaking God's moral law. So that's what salvation is. Now, I'd ask you this, right? This is a common question to just kind of do a little bit of self-analysis. Let's all do a little self-analysis here in our own minds, in your own hearts, as you're sitting here and you're thinking about it. And we ask this question a lot, and if you've been here, you've heard this before, but I really want you to think about it honestly. So, we're all going to die, right? It's a sure thing. We're all going to die. We don't want to be morbid about it, but at the end of that, we trust that, oh, we're going to die and we're going to stand before God. And God's standing there and he's got heaven. He's got eternal life waiting and he says, now hold on. Why should I let you in? Why should I let you into heaven? Now what would you answer? What would be your answer to that question? Now, probably the most common answer in around us in the world today is some derivative of I'm a good person, or I lived a good life. And I think that's, okay, that's great, you lived a good life, and that's, but that's comparative, right? And what you're really saying is, I have done enough to earn my way into heaven. If I'm a good person, I've done enough to earn my way into heaven. And so, if that's your position, then what you're saying is, hey, to be good enough means there is actually a standard to live by. So where does that standard come from? What is that standard? Who made it? Do you see it written down anywhere? Or did you just sort of make up the standard? And so you want to show up before God and say, I'm a good enough person based on my own standards, so let me into your heaven, God. That doesn't really make sense, does it? Where does a standard come from? Well, if it's God's heaven, God probably made that standard, didn't he? It's God's. And frankly, yeah, it should be his, right? You want to you have a club, so to speak, if you were going to have a club in your life? Who would make the standards for membership? You would. Someone couldn't show up and say, well, let me into your club because I meet my own standards for it. It doesn't really make any sense. So what are God's standards? God's standard is perfection. His standard is not sinning in your life. If you want to get into heaven, you have to not sin. But nobody meets that, do they? I don't meet that, and you don't meet that. That's what it says in the verse, lawless. We are lawless, every single one of us, and yet God sent Jesus Christ to redeem us 
from that lawlessness. Now, so I want to walk through this diagram as a way of helping us think about this. It says the gospel, or how I can have a right relationship with God, and to be right with God means I'm going to get to go into heaven when I die. So God created the world. He created everything, and it was God's design, and it was perfect. We see that in Scripture, in Genesis. It was perfect. But we broke it. And the way we broke it was our lawlessness, our sin. And our sin leads us now into a realm where things are broken. We all would agree, wouldn't we? Man, we live in a broken world. Our lives are broken. Everything around us seems to be really broken. And we go, ah, this is not God's design. I want to get back to God's design. And so we all start doing these things. We say, I'm going to try to get out of this brokenness. I'm going to do these things. And they include, oh, good deeds. And we'll talk about good deeds more here in a minute. I'm just going to do good stuff. Again, by whose standard are they good? We're going to do religion. I just sort of be religious. Well, by whose standards? Oh, forget that. I'm just going to have fun and a good time. Or maybe I'll think my way out of it with philosophy. The problem is we ground all of those things in brokenness, and so like gravity, the brokenness pulls it back in, and we remain broken. And this is where God's grace comes in, because God says, yeah, you've, you broke it. You're in brokenness. You're stuck. But I want you to be with me. And so the way we can pay that penalty, God says, I'm out of my grace, you don't deserve this. You don't deserve it. I'm going to send my son, Jesus Christ. And like we talked about, he came to earth. He lived a sinless life. At the end of that life, he died. And that death, at the end of a sinless life, paid the penalty that's due to us. Romans 3.23, or 6.23, the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. So Jesus didn't just die, he rose again. He came back to life. He defeated death and offers us the free gift of salvation where all we have to do is receive that free gift. We can't earn it by anything we do. If we think, I can earn this, I can do this, I can be a good person, then we're saying it's not a free gift. It's a free gift. And so what we need to do is we need to turn from our brokenness and believe. Turn and believe. And from that we get to recover and pursue God's design in this life, and in heaven. And so that's a summary of the gospel. That's a summary of the gospel. And so now I think we have to ask the question, who is this for? Who is salvation for? Well, we go back to our verse. It says, bringing salvation for all people. Are you a person? Yeah, hopefully there's no androids out here. We're all people. And so it's for all of us. But not in a sort of default way. It's by choice. We look at John 1.12. It says, To all who did receive him, speaking of Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So what do we have to do? Believe. Some of you are probably familiar with this verse. These verses in John 3. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they've not believed in the name of God's one and only son. So we see salvation is for all who believe. You're not automatically saved because Jesus came, and yet salvation is as simple as believing. It's as simple as believing. 
So let me ask you this. Have you believed? Have you received the free gift of salvation? Because if you have, when you do, and you get to stand before God, and He says, why should, you let, why should I let you into heaven? You can say, because I received that free gift you gave me through Jesus Christ, your one and only Son. You can say that. But if your answer has anything to do with, I'm a good person, then you're not believing. You're trying to be saved by your own good works, which is impossible. So if you want to be sure, if you want to be redeemed from the penalty of death that's due for your own lawlessness, if you want to be reconciled to God, if you want to spend eternity in heaven, you just must believe and declare that to God. And to do that, here's a prayer that you could pray. God, I change my mind about Jesus and I recognize Him as your Son. I change my mind about myself. I cannot get to heaven on my own. I know that I am a sinner and need your forgiveness. I believe that you died on the cross for my sins and rose from the grave. I now invite you to come into my heart and life as my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. That would be a simple prayer that you could pray. Now, obviously, you have to mean it. But it's as simple as that. It's as simple as believing. And so when we talk about God's grace and God's grace brings salvation, this is what... This is what Paul's talking about. But he doesn't stop there, does he? This would be a great place to just stop, but we're not going to stop. We're going to keep going because he says it brings salvation and it brings about a changed life. In verse 12 he says, This grace is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. God's grace starts but does not stop with salvation into eternal life. So what does it mean, renounce all ungodliness and worldly passions? Those are some big words. (coughs) Let's break those down. First, ungodliness. Well, probably just means that which dishonors God, right? Well, what dishonors God? Galatians 5 tells us the acts of the flesh, the acts that dishonor God are obvious, Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. So a lot included there. That's what ungodliness is. We can summarize it there. These things don't just dishonor God. They bring us sorrow and pain, don't they? What about worldly passions? Well, that's what the world tells us to pursue, isn't it? A worldly passion. 1 John 2.17 tells us instead that the world is passing away along with its desires, along with its passions. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. And I think we know intuitively what the world says to pursue, don't we? Fame, riches, pleasure, and so on and so forth. But what does it tell us? These things are passing away. They're passing away. Paul tells us there to renounce ungodliness, to renounce worldly pleasures. How do we do that? What does it mean to renounce that? Well, on one hand, I think it's really simple. Stop doing it. (laughs) I hate to be simplistic about it. Stop doing the bad stuff and start doing the right stuff. I went and found this picture. 
I don't know if you can see it on the screen. It's a dude running across a highway. Isn't that what sin kind of is? It's like, oh, I get this rush from running across this highway where all this stuff is zipping at me at 70 to 90 miles an hour. So you want to renounce ungodliness and worldly pleasure? Stop. Stop. Don't run out in the highway. Why? Well, it's going to be really exciting for a little bit until that big truck shows up. And then it's not going to be any fun at all. So that's sort of a simple approach, right? Just stop doing it. Oh, that's so easy, Greg. It's just as easy as stopping. Okay, so it's not quite that way. Here's the good news. We don't have to just do that of our own volition. It's not just like, well, you just stop it. Just summon up the strength and you just stop doing bad stuff and start doing good stuff. Let's go back to Titus. Jesus gave himself for us. Oops. He gave himself for us to purify for himself a people who are zealous for good works. See, when we receive that free gift of salvation, we talked about it a minute ago, we also make Jesus our Lord. And we say, I'm going to follow Jesus. He's my Lord. And then God says, I'll give you the Holy Spirit to live inside of you. And now it's no longer our own volition, our own will, our own determination to do the right thing. We have the Holy Spirit, and God develops in us a zeal for doing the right thing. See, have you noticed, I actually got asked this week, what's sort of the formula? How do I get motivated to do good stuff? And you go through scripture and you go, well, there's not really necessarily a formula to do it. And I think that's because true surrender to the Lordship of Christ brings the power of the Holy Spirit to bear in our lives. Right? If you ask that question to me, Greg, how do you know? How how do you have the motivation to do good works or to do good stuff or to have good habits of discipleship? My answer to you is, I don't know. But I do. And the reason I do, I believe, is because the Holy Spirit lives in me. And the Holy Spirit lives in me because I've received that free gift of salvation. And yet, don't forget that this is a process. It's not just, do I receive the Holy Spirit? Now it's just all good and I can do all the good things I want and forget all the bad stuff. It's a process. Training. It talks about training in this passage. He says it trains us. There's an implication, isn't there, that it takes time. It takes effort. See, you see my funny picture here? The little toddler lifting the barbells, right? It's like an athlete, right? And someone says, I'm going to go be a star athlete. They don't just go out and do it. It takes time. It takes discipline. It takes training. It takes good days. It takes bad days. It takes falling on your face and getting up and doing it again. Same with dieting, weight loss, health things. It's a process. It takes effort. Paul tells us it takes training. Renouncing ungodliness and worldly pleasures is an effort-intense training process. Are you in? Have you signed up? Are you doing it? It's another thing he says here. He says, in the present age, it trains us to live in the present age. It wasn't just, oh, this is for Titus and his age. It's for the present age. What is the present age? Right now. Right now is the present age. 
it's always going to be true. I think that's really cool. So we need to understand the age we're living in. How should we live now? How should we live now? First, he gives us this. He says, be self-controlled. We talked about this last week. Self-control means having restraint over our impulses, over our moods, and over our desires. And so think about your life. Think about the world around you. Does having self-control make somebody stand out in this present age? I think so. We live in a world and a culture that says, just don't be self-controlled at all. Just do whatever you want. You see that all the time in the news and in ads and so forth. The second thing Paul says is, be upright. Which means to be strictly honorable. Or to be honest. It means telling the truth. Doing the right thing. Being trustworthy. So I'd ask the same question. Does being upright, of being those things, does that make you stand out in this age? Yeah. Lying is really condoned, isn't it, in our society? There's so much allowance for that. Paul also says, be godly. Which would mean be reverent and be God-fearing. Show deep respect for God and His standards. Will that make you stand out in this present age if you do that? I think so. There's a lot of disrespect for God out there, isn't there? And so I think we've got to ask this too. Are, are good works kind of the end all? Are good works the end all? No. He says we do these things as we await our blessed hope. As we await our blessed hope, the appearing of our great God and Savior. We don't do good works so that we can get into heaven. We do good works as we wait for heaven. And why do we do it? Because it will make our lives thrive. It brings about a changed life. We no longer have to run across the highway and risk getting hit and run over by the Mack truck. So what's the framework for good works? Paul sort of closes this passage and he says this. He says, we have to learn it. We have to learn it. We have to learn to be in good works. We have to, we have to get there. It has to be taught to us. Well, what kind of teachers should we have? Well, he tells us that. He says, teachers that exhort and rebuke with authority. Well, what are those things? Exhortation means a challenge. It's a challenge to you to enter the training. And that's part of what I'm doing here. I'm challenging you. Enter into that training. I'm challenging you. If you have not received the free gift of salvation, receive it. And receive the Holy Spirit. And then enter into the training. There's a challenge there. He also says rebuke. doesn't mean be mean. It just means point out, hey, I think you've sort of fallen off the wagon here on this thing. Let's get back on it. I love you. Let's get back on it. It also means an authority. And there's this verse from Hebrews 13. We've talked about this. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So learn from teachers who exhort and rebuke with authority that God has established for you. And so I want you to understand, in our church, Brad and I, we stand up here, our role is to help and encourage you, not to judge you, not to condemn you. We're not tracking what you're doing. We stand up here because we want to exhort and rebuke if we need to. 
and correct and help us all get on the same path. We're not up here to entertain. And frankly, I don't think Brad and I are very entertaining. <laughs> Brad's probably more entertaining than I am. It's like asked to be Santa Claus and stuff like that. That's pretty, that's pretty entertaining to me. We're not up here because we want something from you. We don't want anything from you. Instead, we're here because we want something for you. We want you to have a blessed life. We want you to have a changed life. We want you, at the end of your life, to walk into heaven because of the free gift of salvation that you've received. That's what we want for you. That's why we're doing what we're doing. second part of the framework for good works is that we each have some things we need to be. He says, here's some things to be. The first one there again is, be submissive to authorities. Like we talked about last week, submissive doesn't mean subservient. It means respect. Respect the authorities. You're not enslaved. It doesn't say sin because your authority tells you to sin. Some of those authorities that we have, those rulers that we have, obviously the government, you have your employers. You have, if you're children, you're still a child, you have your parents. Right, you can think of some other authorities. He's saying, be submissive, respect your authorities. He goes on and says, be obedient. We should be obedient. Well, wait, how's that work? Well, being obedient is different from submission. It does mean follow the rules. Well, which rules? Which rules should we be obedient to? Well, we want to be obedient to the rules that are perfect, that are right, that are good, that are fair, that are just, and there's only one set of rules. That's God's rules. So we want to be obedient to God's rules. We should seek to obey God's standards for living. Paul also says, be ready for good works. Be ready for good works. Be prepared. He doesn't just say, do good works. He says, be ready. You understand there's some preparation that has to happen. You might say, oh yeah, I'll do some good works, but are you ready to do them? Are you prepared? I even think about, I was trying to think of an example. You could probably think of a better one than me, but I was thinking about, oh, if I've got a neighbor, I've got some, some elderly neighbors, and sometimes in the fall, right, the leaves pile up. And I go, I want to go do a good thing. I want to go help rake their leaves. Well, I can't just sort of show up and be like, all right, I'm going to rake leaves. I'm not prepared, am I? I didn't bring a rake. I didn't bring gloves. I didn't bring a bag. Paul's saying, be prepared. There's preparation to be ready. We've got to clear our schedules. We've got to clear our hearts. We've got to be ready. Be prepared. Paul also says, speak no evil and avoid quarreling. I put those two things together because I think those have to deal with how we use our words towards other people. Don't speak ill of people when they aren't present. Right? Speak no evil. Somebody's not there, don't speak evil about them. But then also, don't speak evil to their face. <laughs> don't say it to their face. Be kind. Avoid quarreling. And then lastly, he says, be gentle and show perfect courtesy to all people. So this is not how we speak, but how we treat. How should we treat people? With care, with courtesy, with gentleness. Is that how you're treating other people? Good works ring hollow if we don't demonstrate care for others. And don't do good works as you're trying to promote yourself, right? We go back to what we said. If you're trying to live by some good standard to earn favor in God's eyes, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. 
And so that's the passage for today. And I'll just, the recap there, we want to talk about God's grace. And God's grace kind of does two things for us, at least. The first one, it brings us salvation. It can save us from the penalty of our sins. Maybe there's some of you who are here today who have never received that free gift. And I think you have an opportunity here to do that. And also, God's grace then gives us the opportunity to live a changed life. A changed life that's marked by good works that are done out of love and motivated by the Holy Spirit. So that's where God's grace is for us. I'll pray and close our time. Hey God, I thank you for your grace. God, we don't deserve it. That's sort of why it's called grace. It's in the definition. It's unmerited. You've extended favor to us that we don't deserve. The wages of sin are death. We all deserve death. Yet somehow, God, you've seen fit. You've seen fit to extend your grace to us. And so, God, we understand, we recognize this morning that... The only way, the only way to meet your righteous standard of perfection is to allow Jesus to meet it for us. And to do that, we need to believe that that's what he's done. That's the way you've made for us. We need to receive that free gift of salvation. And Lord, I know maybe there's some here even this morning who haven't done that. God, and as we, we have that simple prayer on the screen, Lord, if, if you would just move on anyone's heart who wants to pray and invite Christ to come live in their life and be the free gift. Stand in their place. And God, we think about moving on and moving on from that foundation of salvation into having a changed life. God, we recognize, oh, there's training and there's, there's discipline and there's just needing to stop doing these things and start doing the other things. But God, thank you that you've given us your Holy Spirit when we receive that free gift. And that Holy Spirit motivates us and guides us and directs us and changes us. And Lord, maybe there's things some of us are even doing. We've received that free gift, but we're, we're just sort of choking out the Holy Spirit. It's keeping us from being motivated or we're being lazy or we're letting our flesh get in the way. Lord, help us. Help us to walk into good works. Help us to be prepared. Help us to speak no evil. Avoid quarreling. Help us to be kind and patient and courteous to each other and to others. God, we thank you for your grace that motivates us and covers all of that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.